The Dance Edit podcast is brought to you by Jackrabbit Dance. Jackrabbit is the industry's most reliable dance studio management software. If you're a studio owner, you know how important class management software is. Jackrabbit is going to make your life so much easier. Their software is cloud-based, powerful, and adaptable. And Jackrabbit has the industry's largest team of trainers, product coaches, and client success specialists to support you in your studio. You wouldn't accept less than the best from your students. Don't accept it from your software either. Visit jackrabbitdance.com and use the promo code DANCEMEDIA, all one word, for a free trial. friends and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Cadence Neenan. We are editors at Dance Media and welcome to Virgo season, also known as the 547th week of quarantine. <laughs> Time is fake. In today's episode, we will be talking about the Tony Awards, which will in fact be happening digitally this fall and about this year's uniquely complicated eligibility decisions discussing the Mariinsky Ballet's COVID outbreak and subsequent shutdown and what that might mean for other dance companies hoping to reopen, highlighting Dancing Earth, the indigenous contemporary dance company that is making space for Native artists to envision a better future through dance, and hearing from Kahina Haynes, the executive director of the Dance Institute of Washington, which has been advocating for equity in dance for decades. Um, but first, if you've been enjoying our podcast, please make sure that you're also signed up for the Dance Edit newsletter, which is an, I'd say, equal parts pithy and punny daily dance digest. That's kind of our vibe. You can subscribe to that at thedanceedit.com. And don't forget to keep up with us on Twitter at dance underscore edit and Instagram at the.dance.edit for even more timely content. So now, as usual, it's time for our dance headline rundown, and we have a lot of headlines to touch on this week. Courtney, kick us off. Uh, so Nina Popova, a celebrated Russian ballerina who danced with Colonel de Basil's original ballet Rus and the precursor to American Ballet Theater and was also the first artistic director of Houston Ballet, passed away from the coronavirus at age 97. Chichi Devane, the self-proclaimed Southern Bayou princess and iconic performer who competed on two seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race, passed away last week after being hospitalized for pneumonia. Um, Devane, who was known offstage as Xavion Davenport, was 34. Uh, Netflix came under fire recently for its marketing of Cuties, a French-language film about an 11-year-old Senegalese Muslim girl who joins a dance team in Paris. The rather sexualized poster and language used to promote the film are a marked departure from the French materials and are a complete misrepresentation of what the film is about, according to critics who have actually seen it, which I should note does not include anyone on this podcast. Yeah, uh, important caveat. Netflix has since apologized and edited the materials, but online petitions to cancel the film and negative review bombing from folks who say it promotes child pornography, despite more than likely not having seen the film, are ongoing. The Dance Studies Association has issued a call to anti-racist action to dance departments around the world by creating a template letter that can be used as a resource by dancers to demand broad changes from their institutions. The letter is organized into four sections of change, faculty hiring practices and support, pedagogical and curriculum change, staff and student hiring practices, and departmental policy and procedure. We will link to that in the episode description. Uh, after allegations of sexual misconduct arose against Ballet West Scotland's vice president, 
principal, resulting in his resignation and the opening of a police investigation into the accusations, the ballet school has announced that it is now shuttering. In a plot twist that only 2020 could invent, dancers are now facing a new challenge, a potential shortage of point shoes. Many of the factories that produce point shoes have been closed for the past several months due to the pandemic, and while most have now resumed production, there will likely be delays for a period of time, and many brands are currently unable to fulfill custom orders. Yeah, was that on your 2020 apocalypse bingo board? I have to admit it was not on mine. (laughs) Uh, I just have all the the kind of sad and dark ones this week, huh? Uh, Tin Harry Legs founding artistic director Randy James has stepped down from his role. Associate artistic director Alex Beagleson will be acting as interim artistic director. Famed ballet superfan Jennifer Garner debuted a dance duet with New York City ballet star Tyler Peck set to We Go Together from Greece. It is adorable and perfect, so please make sure to check it out on both Garner and Peck's Instagram pages. Whenever that sadness and darkness is overwhelming you. In cheerier news, from me at least, uh, the international tour of the musical Romantics Anonymous was called off in March due to the pandemic, but live performances of the musical Sans Audience will be streamed to audiences in the original tour cities and others, with digital tickets available through the presenting venues. Interesting model. I'm so curious to see what happens with it. And if you've been taking dance class virtually through the pandemic, just know that you may be joined in your next class by none other than Hugh Jackman. The Tony Award winner says he has been taking classes online with Broadway Dance Center to prepare for his upcoming stint as Harold Hill in The Music Man. And for the record, he says he takes class without his video recording on, so don't go hunting for his picture in your next Zoom call. I know, I know he's a big movie star, but does, doesn't it just seem like he's more at home in a musical theater setting, like that is yes. his natural mm-hmm. happy habitat. Place. Yeah. 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 And bless him for mentioning BDC by name in the interview. Iconic. <laughs> um, anyway, speaking of ways that the pandemic has torn the fabric of the Broadway universe, um, in our next segment, we're going to talk all things 2020 Tonys, because as we found out late last week, the Tony Awards will officially be happening this year. The ceremony is going to be an online event to be held at some as yet unspecified date this fall, but it'll be far from show business as usual. You know what? I have written in here, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry for that. I'm proud of that. Far from show business as usual. I'm owning it. We want to talk about the eligibility issue because obviously the Broadway season was cut short by the coronavirus shutdown, which means for starters that the field is much narrower than usual. Yeah, so the cutoff date for the Tony Awards is typically in April. Broadway, of course, shut down on March 12th, uh, and so the eligibility cutoff was retroactively ruled to be February 19th, uh, which rules out a number of shows, notably West Side Story, which officially opened on February 20th, one day, which... You know, the logic behind it is, you know, some of these shows had opened before the um, closure of Broadway. However, not enough nominators had been able to see the shows that had just opened. Uh, that said, Yesenia Ayala deserves a Tony nomination mm-hmm. for her Anita. And I'm like, mm. anyway. Retweet, retweet, retweet. I mean, hopefully that show then will be eligible for next year's Tonys. But is it going to put it at a disadvantage? Well, and that's, a th- and that's kind of a lot of what I think they were talking about was like not wanting to combine two seasons into one so that the 2019 openers um, would themselves be at a disadvantage, you know, Moulin Rouge, Jagged Little Pill. But then it does raise the question of the shows that had like just, just opened at the start of this year. Is anyone still going to have that on their brains if and when we get a normal Tony Awards next season? 
I don't know if you guys have seen it, but there have been a few infographics put out by The Ensemblist. It's a popular website by and for Broadway performers. And they asked 44 company members from shows that are actually eligible for this year's Tony Awards. Uh, One of the questions that they asked was, would you prefer for the Broadway League and American Theater Wing to wait until theaters reopen to celebrate your production? And 62% of participants said yes, they would prefer that the Broadway League waited until next year to celebrate all the shows at once because um, 51% of the people who answered said that they don't believe a digital Tony Awards can properly celebrate the achievements made this season. Um, It's also worth noting that because of the cutoff date, there are only four musicals that qualify which those four uh moulin rouge jagged little pill tina the tina turner musical and the lightning thief um some of what they're talking about doing and this is still tbd is potentially limiting the number of nominations in a given category normally you see five per category um or having a in uncontested categories having a minimum percentage of votes that a person would need in order to actually win uh, there are a lot of options up in the air for how this might be handled. I think it's also interesting that even though there are only four musicals that are technically eligible, the choreography category would still be mm-hmm. a battle. I'm, I was just thinking, you know, if they have to get rid of a few categories, maybe we'll finally get some airtime from Best Choreography <laughs> since it's going to be so hotly contested this year. Yeah, because we have Sonia Tai's work for Moulin Rouge. We have City Larby Charcoui's work for Jagged Little Pill. There was some talk, it seems unlikely, but there was some talk of even though American Utopia's producers didn't submit it for Tony's consideration, adding that into the mix to enlarge the pool a little bit, then we'd have Annie B. Parson up for best career. I mean, it's just... (laughs) That would be radical. Incredible cast of dancers in both shows, Mm -hmm. too. So I guess overall takeaway, there are just a ton of unknowns here. The Tony Awards Administration Committee has promised more information in the coming weeks, was the phrase they used, so stay tuned. Um, Moving on now to our next segment, I think a lot of the dance world was sort of a combination of skeptical and wildly hopeful when several weeks ago we heard that the Mariinsky Ballet would be returning to the stage and the Bolshoi also resumed performances around that time. So there's the sense that if these big Russian companies could make pandemic times comebacks, maybe there was hope for the rest of us. But I think a lot of us were also wondering how the heck they were going to make it work. And unfortunately, as it turns out, they didn't really make it work. Um, There were allegations in mid-August about COVID outbreaks at both the Mariinsky and the Bolshoi. And then last week, we got word that, yes, the Mariinsky had officially shut down after about 30 company members tested positive for the virus. It sounds like a, a bit of a muddle, but it's also definitely a warning for other dance companies trying to plot out their own returns to live performance. Yeah, so the Mariinsky had returned to classes at the end of May. They had safety measures like dancers being tested weekly. All of their rehearsal rooms were disinfected between classes. Dancers had to undergo temperature checks before entering the building. All the dancers wore masks until they entered rehearsal rooms. And they had a few gala performances in August that went pretty well with limited numbers of dancers performing. um, And those dancers were paired in duets so that they would have limited contact. Um, After that, the company decided to move to larger-scale performances, which included the corps de ballet, and increased their class sizes to about 30 dancers per class. Two and a half weeks later, after that decision, they've had to shut down. So I think it's just a huge blow to a lot of people in the European dance community. 
I think it's worth noting one detail that came up in uh, this New York Times story kind of breaking down the situation is that according to uh, Xander Parrish, outside of the Marinsky, the dancers didn't actually have any restrictions on, you know, who they were seeing, where they were going, what they were doing. So, you know, your pod is only as safe as the least responsible member of your pod. So Xander Parrish, who's a, he's a British dancer who's a soloist, a principal soloist with Mariinsky, some of his quotes indicate just how eager he and the other dancers are to get back on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he had a quote saying, you know, they're saying we should wait two years to get back on stage. And that's ridiculous. A dancer's career is 20 years. And he was backing the director's decision to put the company back in a theater saying it shows how much he cares about this art form. And so clearly there's this like push and pull that's happening that it's it's heartbreaking that this kind of return doesn't seem to be possible right now. But I also think something that really stood out to me was him saying, you know, it's not like our rehearsals were badly organized. They've been trying so hard to be safe. And I think it's I just kind of concerning to me that even the companies who are putting in all these safety measures, like we saw it with Washington Ballet's gala, they really work so hard to make sure that their dancers were going to be safe and they're still experiencing outbreaks. Not to get on a soapbox, but uh, I think this is one of those cases where um, while individual behavior is a very important factor in terms of protecting yourself, protecting the people around you and the people that you interact with, uh, at the end of the day, when you are dealing with a pandemic on a global scale, um, larger organizational and governmental responses and stances and policies are ultimately what is going to turn the tide of public health. And I think mm-hmm. that is so much of what we are seeing right now. Here, here. Uh, basically, the live indoor performance scenario, it already seemed a thousand years off for United States companies anyway, and I think this failure only makes it feel farther away. It's just disheartening. But as we've discussed in other episodes, this moment of relative quiet during the pandemic has been a little bit of a silver lining. It's given a lot of arts organizations time to take stock and think about ways to embody the principles of the social justice movements that have sort of shaken them awake during this period. In our next segment, we'd actually like to talk about a woefully undercovered dance company that's been living out many of those principles since its inception back in 2004. Um, That's Dancing Earth, the Santa Fe-based indigenous contemporary dance company founded by Rulen Tongyan. Um, It works to affect social change through art, focusing on decolonizing theater at all levels and making space for Native artists. And its performances are often this combination of dance production and transformative ritual. So I think as we always kind of end up saying, highly recommend checking out this interview um, in High Country News yourself. We're going to link to it in the episode description. It's a beautiful statement of purpose in a lot of ways, talking about uh, dance and performance in terms that we don't necessarily think of it always, particularly in Western concert dance forms, talking about the roots of dance in ritual and the importance of rituals in addressing the issues of our times and of addressing social issues. And so much of what Dancing Earth does, it gets beyond just what they're putting on stage. It's who they're including, where the work happens. Rulon described it as uh, little ripples that go out, like when you touch water. A lot of dance companies are now trying to incorporate work with their community as a part of their mission to make themselves more inclusive. But that's been the mission of this company since its foundation. They don't just work 
with their communities. The community members actively participate in creating the work that this company performs. Tanyan has a quote that says, a lot of Dancing Earth's work comes from an interpretation of telling a story from a circle. Everyone's perspective is valued. So they actually incorporate indigenous perspectives into their works. They have audience participation. Their local communities um, provide feedback that they incorporate into all of their works. She even at one point says that her own aesthetic for dance might actually differ from the aesthetic that you see on stage because the aesthetic that comes from creating work with her community is more layered versus her own aesthetic is more sparse. And I think it's just a really incredible example of someone who is prioritizing the needs of their community and making sure that those voices are being incorporated into artwork in a way that we don't typically see. We should mention that one of the reasons this company has been in in the news recently, including that, that beautiful interview in High Country News, is because of the online cultural and educational events that they've been offering during the pandemic. They're using technology to amplify indigenous voices, which is especially important at this moment. In addition to reading that interview, we'd encourage you to go check out some of their online events, particularly their Afro-Indigenous Empowerment event, which is happening on September 10th, which we'll also link to in the episode description. So now we have the next installment in our voice memo series. And this week we have a message from Kahina Haynes, who is the executive director of the Dance Institute of Washington. And Dance Institute of Washington was founded by Dance Theater of Harlem soloist Fabian Barnes in 1987. So for more than three decades, the organization has been working to diversify the professional dance industry in and around Washington, DC. And it's been a standard bearer really for others fighting for racial and economic equity in dance. Um, Kahina is a gifted artist and arts activist who became the leader of Dance Institute of Washington following Barnes' death in 2016. Here she is. Hello, Dance Edit listeners. My name is Kahina Haynes, and I proudly serve as the executive director at the Dance Institute of Washington, located in Washington, D.C. I'm so excited to have the opportunity to speak with you all and share a bit more on just my views and observations and hopefully shed some light on what I see unfolding in the dance community. Now, a bit about myself. My relationship to the dance community began at a very young age. In fact, the age of three, I began dancing under the tutelage of my grandmother who ran a dance school and also my mother who was a dancer. Later on, I continued my training at various schools, including the Maryland Youth Ballet, School of American Ballet, throughout my undergraduate experience at Princeton University, and later on professionally during grad school in the UK. Um, and my dance experience and journey, like I'm sure most of you can relate to, um, is just so, so special, particularly that of my training, because I do feel it prepared me in an unparalleled way for circumstances that I would encounter later on in life. So I'm very, very grateful to the opportunities that I had to train with the various schools and people and for what dance did for me. In fact, I believe it was this close relationship to training um, and understanding what 
access to an experience like that can do um, is what led me to my work at the Dance Institute of Washington. As many of you know, those opportunities are rare and largely inaccessible. Um, and so at DIW, we identify and work very closely with students who are historically excluded from those opportunities for various reasons and or barriers, um, whether those are socioeconomic, whether those are racial, whether those are trauma-informed, whatever the reason, they have been left out um, and they have not identified a path to a training experience that could really transform their life. Well, at the Dance Institute of Washington, we've been working over the last four years on a customized model that really addresses this equity gap um, and ensures that our students get the supplementary services and um, supports to really ensure that they advance. They advance progressively at every level of our curriculum and ultimately matriculate successfully into not only the professional dance industry, but um, the workforce industry, higher education, and a number of other amazing opportunities that they are exposed to. Now, the way in which we approach our work at DIW is actually a perfect segue to what I wanted to offer the dance community, which is that while I'm so happy to see the efforts and the initiative um, to really think through what it would take to change the landscape of the industry and make it more equitable, I think it's we're incredibly misguided um, in our approach because we're not taking the time to really define what the problems are. Um, I'm seeing a lot of education, pretty much, you know, every panel, every workshop, everyone's hiring a consultant, everyone's trying to get a race equity lens and framework. Um, but I don't know that that's helpful if we don't understand actually what the problems are. I've not seen any conversation, authentic conversation where someone asks an artistic director or a production manager or an agent, why has, why has their decision making for the last 50 to 70 to 100 years looked the way that it has? Why have they not cared about the disparities in their companies and in their schools until now following the murders of innocent black people. Why was it okay before, but it's not okay now? There's, there's, there are answers to those questions. Um, and I really, I just don't know if we're going to see, um, the progress we'll see because if we don't understand, if we don't define the problem, adequately, let alone accurately. We, our, our solution, um, you know, we know this from data. Our solution is not going to, is not going to suffice. It might gloss over. It might mitigate a couple things, but it won't change the narrative. It won't change, um, it won't change the industry that we see. And so it begs the question, you know, do we, do we really, do we want to see this industry change? Because that's a big, that's a tall order. Um, I think to see trends change in the dance industry, we'd really have to hold the mirror up. Um, people in leadership positions would need to hold the mirror up, really unpack why the decisions have looked how they have, um, and assess what standards have been conditionally 
um, and, and sort of subconsciously ingrained in us? And where are the opportunities to break those, to shatter those, and really look to a new future where the standards and expectations um, and the what what is informing the decisions is is organic and is authentic and is truly equitable. And I view that process um, as being informed by not just creative directors and artistic directors, but also audience members, also by the students, the humans, the bodies that make or break this art form. It involves buy-in at every level um of the sort of web to 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 create the uh, an, an equitable dance future that we envision and if any of what i'm saying interests or engages you or speaks to you in any way please check out our most recent op-ed by william kaiser at the dance institute of washington we'd love to hear your thoughts and engage in dialogue with you thanks so much Thank you, Kahina, so much for that. Um, we will include the link to the op-ed that she mentions in our episode description. It's about the importance of centering Black-led organizations in dance. Um, we also want to mention that Dance Institute of Washington just put out a beautiful short dance film about the importance of self-love during difficult times, featuring a student from its school. We'll link to that too. And please be sure to visit the organization's website, danceinstituteofwashington.org, to learn about all of its offerings, including its school, which actually just opened enrollment for the year, and they do have some virtual options, so check it out. Okay. Thanks everyone for joining us. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. Bye, everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those football sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.